This is the Sports Business Radio Roadshow, presented by Boingo Wireless. From Hard Rock Stadium, home of the Miami Dolphins, with special guest Tom Garfinkel, president of the Miami Dolphins. And so the more we can get people talking about those things and empathizing and having some understanding of how the other person feels, the more we can bring people together. Um, the more we just pick a side and fight each other, the worse things get. And so anything we can do to try to bring people together to have those conversations is, uh, is what we're trying to do. Now, here's the host of Sports Business Radio, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us. It was great to be on location at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami with Miami Dolphins President Tom Garfinkel. We had students in attendance from Johnson & Wales University, Nova Southeastern University, Florida International University, Barry University and Florida Memorial University. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Tom Garfinkel. Thanks again to our presenting sponsor, Boingo, for sponsoring the Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Enjoy this conversation. Good morning, everyone. And, uh, and thank you for coming today. Um, I'm Jim Alexander. I'm with Boingo Wireless, and it's uh, my great pleasure to be here today. Uh, Boingo is sponsoring this, this event. And um, as a company, just, just, just a little background, as a company, we, uh, we power up venues, large sports uh, venues, uh, stadiums, arenas, uh, in the sense that we provide connectivity for, for wireless devices like your cell phones and your tablets. Uh, the point being, of course, not just so that you could stay in touch with family and friends while you're at, a, uh, at an event, but also really so that you can be close to the action. And so this is really interesting. You're all, as I understand it, um, students of, of you know, the business, the industry of sports. And, of course, technology and sports are really converging in a way that um, is serving to enhance the, the fan experience uh, while you're at the venue. Um, and so that's really where Boingo's playing a role. So um, as you think about your careers in technology, or excuse me, as you think about your careers in sports, think about technology as well. There are opportunities in technology around sports uh, as they are converging. So I'd like to um, also say that, uh, you know, with this particular venue, um, there's some major events that occur here. And in in the coming years, of course, um, in 2020, the Super Bowl will be here. Uh, 5G services will be deployed around that time, and so we're going to see some interesting things with technology that will uh, really make a difference at the, at the event uh, for fans. Um, and so uh, with that said, I'd like to uh, uh, introduce Brian Berger, and, uh, and thank you. Thank you, everyone. I'm Brian Berger. I'm the host of Sports Business Radio. really appreciate you being here today. A few quick things before we start. We are going to be recording this conversation. It will be on our uh, show this week. Uh, you can go to sportsbusinessradio.com to find us. We are tweeting today. We are posting on Instagram. The hashtag is SBR, like Sports Business Radio Miami. Hashtag SBR Miami. We're on Twitter at SB Radio. And we are on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. Without further ado, let's welcome today's guest, Tom Garfinkel, the President, Vice Chair, and CEO of the Miami Dolphins. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Good morning. I just had my first coffee, so I should be okay. Yeah. Like uh, that guy in, in uh, Best in Show, you know, the newscaster, when he comes on right before the <laughs> camera comes on, and he's like, energy, you know. So You brought the energy today. Bring, trying to bring some energy this morning. Yeah, thank you. All right. So we have students here from Johnson & Wales University, 
Nova Southeastern University, Florida International University, Barry University, and Florida Memorial University. Tom, you went to University of Colorado at Boulder. I don't know if you remember sitting in, in these seats when you were a student, but we always start our road shows with when our guest was a student. When did you know you wanted to work in sports? And take us back to that time. Wow, interesting question. So, um, yeah, I I didn't really know. I think I think I just love sports. I played football and basketball growing up in high school. Um, uh, played a lot, you know, in college with my friends and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, sports was just something that was really interesting to me. I didn't really know what the business of sports meant at the time. I, my dad was here last weekend, and he reminded me that. When I was about 16, I told him that my dream job was to be the director of marketing for the San Francisco 49ers. So, um, and I didn't know that. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I didn't remember that story. So it was kind of interesting um, perspective. But when I got out of college, I, I, I moved to Chicago with some friends. I was sleeping on a friend's couch. I was working at a bar, checking IDs, trying to just be next to Wrigley Field, just trying to get a job in sports, and uh, just to be around it and figure it out from there. And uh, Kind of took it from there. It was a long, long journey, and and uh, but it all started started right there in Chicago. So, was there a moment where the light kind of came on, and you were like, "I can see this path into sports." I think it was, uh, you know, I was exploring different things. I had friends doing some different things that were, you know, where they were doing really well, and I was still working at the bars. and And I remember. Uh, having dinner actually with my dad at the time about a year into it he said you know how's the uh, how's the job search going and I said well I can't get anybody to hire me you know I'm, I'm trying to get a job in sports doing these informational interviews and he said how are things going at the bars I said you know I can pay my rent I've got a place with a couple guys and it's going fine he said is there anything you'd do differently if you ran the place and I said oh yeah I had ideas I'd change this I'd do this I'd already thought about a bunch of things and he said wow those are really good ideas why don't you share those with the owner or the manager of the bar I said well I don't really want to work in the bar business forever I want to work in sports you know he said it doesn't matter as long as you're learning and growing that's all that matters so I went back the next day shared the ideas uh, two years later I was I was running three bars one of which I had opened uh, three of the bigger sports bars in Chicago that led to, you know, a job with Miller Brewing Company, which led to another thing, which led to another thing, which led to another thing. So, you know, my mantra has always sort of been in, in, at work and now in life, too, is if you're always learning and growing, uh, you know, opportunities present themselves. So, It's great advice. We've got students here that I'm sure want to work in sports one day. I'm sure you get hit up for jobs all the time. I want to work in sports. Everyone wants to work in sports. What advice other than going that extra mile taking some initiative like you just uh, described your situation with the three bars. What advice would you give to students today who are saying, I want to work in sports? So a lot of people say, I want to work in sports. I love sports. Have an idea of what you want to do. I think, and, and be open-minded to doing different things at the same time. I think, you know, um, you know be passionate about what you want um, and be flexible about what it's going to take to get there. I think... Um, I, I, the best career advice I give people, whether it's sports-related or not, and I really believe this, looking back on my career and, and others, is just go where you have the best opportunity to learn and where you have the best opportunity to produce results. I think people 
think about job progression as linear, meaning I have to get the next title, the next I need to get more money, and you continue going up the ladder, so to speak. And I took I took a lot of non-traditional decisions, took steps backward to go forward, but I always went places where there was great opportunities to learn and produce results. And if you think about that, that means that you're around people to learn from. You're in an environment um, where you're challenged. You're uh, you have you know there's upside to go create things. You have autonomy and resources to produce some results in the area of responsibility you have. And if you do those things, if you think about it intuitively, um, you know, if you're producing results, opportunities are going to present themselves. And if you're learning, you're going to be ready for them when, when they do. So you go from University of Colorado at Boulder to the Stephen M. Ross Business School at the University of Michigan. And isn't it ironic? That's who you're working with. Now, when you went there at the time, could you have ever dreamt, wow, one day I'm going to be working with the guy whose name is on this business school? Yeah, ironically, uh, you know, I'm getting kind of old now. His name wasn't on the school at the time. It was just called the Michigan Business School. Okay. And uh, I remember a few years later uh, when they, when they, it was the first time I'd heard Stephen's name and, and, and they, they named it the Stephen M. Ross School of Business. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder who that guy is. And then uh, <laughs> uh, read a little bit about him and then had an opportunity to meet him in 2009 um, and, uh, and then ended up, you know, coming to work for him in 2013. So. I want to ask you about your philosophy of leadership, but I, I've spoken with Mr. Ross before. Describe him as a leader. He's fantastic. I mean, first of all, I think Steve is a, uh, he's an amazing person. He's an amazing human being. Mm-hmm. I think um, he's simultaneously sort of, you know, really big picture thinker, really out of the box thinker, but also just a caring, good person, cares about people. Um, uh, he's got this incredible, you know, Steve is someone that's always looking forward. You know, he's 78 years old. He's got more energy than, than I do. And he's, uh, he's always looking forward. It's hard to get him to tell stories about the past. You know, a lot of people they reach a certain point in life and they just, they're talking about everything they've done and the same stories throughout their life. Steve's always talking about what we're going to do next, what's going to happen next. He doesn't want to talk about last year, let alone 20 years ago. Hmm. And uh, I had an opportunity once, uh, we were in Aspen together. We went for a walk one morning. So it was just he and I for about an hour in the morning going for a walk, right? So I started asking him questions about his past. And he kind of told me his life story. And it was just, it was just this fascinating, fascinating set of circumstances that kind of created, you know, who he is. And um, uh, he, really is, he really is an amazing guy. You have worked for the Padres, for the Diamondbacks. You worked in motorsports. Obviously, you're here now. We'll dig into that in a minute, but your philosophy on leadership, because you've been a leader in your own right for a while now. Yeah, I, I've, um, you know, I've considered myself a student of leadership, and I study it, and I observe, and I, I um, uh, both, you know, just through reading and watching things and, and really trying to learn about leadership uh, formally, academically, informally, through being around a lot of great leaders, fortunately, in my life, and trying to learn things from them. Um, you know the conclusions are, are uh, you know always you know always always growing and, and changing. But I think for me it's you know the, the greatest leaders are the ones who have you know courage, humility, and judgment. I think um, if you look at you know Nelson Mandela or Bobby Kennedy or you know people that um, have done just incredible leadership things in their life, these are consistent themes. And um, you know having having the courage to do things when people don't. You know, when, when it's not conventional wisdom, when people disagree with you, when people, you know, Steve Ross is like that. He'll, he doesn't care. This whole room could tell him he's wrong and he'll just believe he's right about something. And, 
and and he'll be right and the whole room will be wrong, you know, oftentimes. So um, I think, you know, that the courage to do those things is really important. The humility of, of you know, there's a balance of, of sort of ego in leadership where leaders have to have a certain amount of ego to be able to get up in front of a room and have the gravitas to believe you're, you're right when everybody thinks you're wrong. And there's a certain amount of ego that comes along with that that's healthy, but there's a difference between... Um, you know, sort of arrogance and confidence. And I think that uh, humility is a big part of leadership. And, and the humility I'm talking about is the humility to know that it's really not about you. It's really about the team of people around you. Um, I asked Bob Ulrich, the, the, the former CEO of Target, who was a great mentor of mine once, you know, Bob, you've, you've had more shareholder return in the last decade than any, any company in the stock exchange. This was about 2008. More than EMC, more than Dell, more than Microsoft. Um, yet, if I asked most people in the country who's the CEO of Target, they wouldn't know your name. Hmm. And they know Bob Nardelli, and they know Jack Welch, and I've never seen you on the cover of Fortune. Why is that? And he just said, it's not about me. It's about the brand, and it's about the team. You know. And so uh, when they eventually, when Bob was going to retire, and Fortune had constantly been asking him to do an article, um, and he kept refusing, um, they did a big article about Target. And the cover of the Fortune magazine was the target dog with the little thing on his eye. And inside there was a picture of Bob, and he refused to be taken, take a picture by himself. It was him and his whole leadership team. And I think that's, you know, and Bob, look, Bob had a big ego, and Bob was convinced he was right, and Bob was, you know, but it, he knew it wasn't about him. Right. And I think, you know, that's the kind of, that humility. And then finally the judgment to, to make decisions, big and small, that, you know, because those decisions affect, they create the culture in the organization is basically not, not one person's decisions, but the decisions that leadership makes, you know, how to dress, how to, what time you show up to, to really big strategic decisions, so. You worked in baseball for a while, Padres, Arizona Diamondbacks. Are there some consistencies between Major League Baseball and the NFL culture leadership, or are they vastly different in, in, your experience? Um, it's not that binary. I think, you know, there's certainly a lot of similarities and then there's a lot of differences. I think, um, you know, uh, uh, Major League Baseball, you know, the games are different. The pace is different. You know, I used to say in baseball that one game is like one offensive possession in football. Hmm. There's, there's 162 games versus 16 in football. Um, you probably have 10 offensive possessions in football. So when you lose three games it's in baseball in a row, I used to say, tell people, well, it's kind of like you just went three and out and punted three times in a row. It's not the end of the world. You know? So whereas football, the intensity of every weekend, um, you know, it's just much more intense week to week because there's only 16 of these games. Uh, so that's much different. Um, you know, the business challenges of selling out 81 home games versus trying to sell 10 games is different. The, uh, uh, the business model is very different, right? In football, you've got uh, 32 teams who each have $177 million this year to spend on players. Um, so Green Bay can beat New York. Uh, whereas in baseball, you know, when I, 2010, we won 90 games with uh, a $38 million payroll and the Yankees had a $220 million payroll. Um, that's pretty disparate. So I think, you know, um, th- there's a lot of differences there. Um, culturally a little different. So, you know, there's there's a lot of similarities. The business is fundamentally similar. You're managing an owner. You're managing the media. You're managing a brand and a community. Uh, the revenue streams are pretty similar. So, you know, there's similarities and, and there's a lot of differences as well. So you're a vice chair, president, and CEO, not just of the Dolphins, but of Hard Rock Stadium. And 
for our listeners, I, I am in the stadium right now, and I don't know that I've ever seen a renovation quite as amazing as this one. To see the before and, and now the after, what you've done with this $500 million renovation is, is nothing short of awesome, so congratulations Thank there. You. But wearing two hats, a lot of times you have a venue CEO and you have a team CEO. I would imagine you have to have a certain skill set to be able to do both because it's pretty different businesses. Well, it's a lot of fun. I, I think, first of all, you know, again, uh, to have an owner who has both the capacity and the willingness to invest in big ideas and to to ha- to trust in big ideas and to believe in them and to, to put the money forward and and trust that it's going to work out. Um, you know, there's just there's a lot of things we did in the renovation. I think we're sort of non-traditional that. Um, have worked out well, uh, you know, and and managing the business of the stadium is a lot of fun. I mean, having, you know, now a $60 million tennis center, bringing the Miami Open here, putting on big events, uh, what that's able to do for the city of Miami to keep it here, to do it here at the stadium, uh, to bring in Real Madrid, Barcelona for the Clasico, the first time they played outside of, out of in the United States. Uh, those types of things are a lot of fun. And... Um, uh, and we've got a great team, and, and so, so doing things like that for, and then when you have U2 here, when you have Coldplay here, when you have uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z here, and the place is full, and, and you look out at, at the crowd, and you look out at what's going on here, it's, it's, it's kind of a lot of fun to be a part of. I love the seating bowl, because no matter what event, it seems like you're right on top of the action. I was at the football game yesterday, and it just seems like you're so close to the field no matter what seat you're in. Yeah, when I arrived, there was a plan in place for a renovation, um, and uh, we changed it quite a bit. I think, you know, a few key priorities. One, uh, I wanted to get rid of uh, sort of uh, just put a thing that said no bad seats. So, um, and the idea of creating some scarcity and, and, and reducing capacity a bit, but not to hit a specific number, more to organically say, here's what we're going to do with this, creating differentiated seating products. I think most stadiums were sort of homogeneous. There's three seating products. You sit in a chair next to two people. You sit in a seated, a cushion chair next to two people, or you sit in a back in a suite somewhere. So we wanted to create, you know, multiple seating products. Um, we wanted to create an environment where the crowd noise stayed in the bowl, and it was a really loud stadium when the crowd got loud. So we actually, you know, got audio engineers and engineered the whole building as such. Uh, and it is very loud now when, when the crowd gets going, which is great. Um, you know, we, we, we wanted to make it more intimate, like you said. So we actually moved on the sidelines. We tore out the entire, the entire stands, rebuilt them, and moved uh, about 25 feet closer to the field on either side. So there's 10 more, 10, we're 10 rows closer now than we were previously. And it definitely creates a much more intimate, intimate feel. That combined with the crowd noise combined, it, it, it is, uh, much more intimate for a football game than it was previously. So you mentioned Miami Open is moving here tennis. Uh, 2020 Super Bowl is here. 2021 college football playoff champion. National game championship. Here. We've got the uh, college football semi here this year. Um, Super Bowl 2020, national championship game 2021, uh, hopefully World Cup 2026. Um, and, uh, you know, we're hoping to get multiple Super Bowls in the next, you know, several years. Um, I think. You know, again, with the different seating products that we have, I think it creates opportunities that are uh, pretty unique. I think that the luxury seating, you know, we took out a a section of about 2,200 seats that was doing $2.5 million in revenue. 
and uh, and put in about 800 seats in nine suites there, which was kind of counterintuitive at the time to take the best real estate in the stadium and actually reduce capacity by that much um, and try to create a true luxury experience uh, for high-end customers who just wanted the best experience and put in 800 seats that were over $1,000. And at the time, uh, someone at the NFL told me, Tom, this is never going to work. Hmm. Uh, you should be putting more seats in there. There isn't a, th- a ticket for $1,000 in all of the NFL. This is hmm. crazy. It's never going to work. Um, and three months later, we had sold it all out. Huh. And uh, uh, he said, Tom, when everybody sees this, they're all going to be copying you. And this is great. <laughs> but the, uh, you want some commission on that idea, right? <laughs> No, I mean we're doing so that two and a half million dollars is now fourteen million dollars in the same real estate. So um, so it worked out, but it was about creating scarcity for that, and it wasn't just about bigger seats. I mean, you come in a separate lane with no traffic, you have TVs, the food is phenomenal, the well vodka in the bar is great goose. Like it's it's truly a luxury experience, and we sold it to you know wealthy individuals, not necessarily big corporations and things. So when you go down in there, it's kind of ex-NBA players and different musicians and different wealthy people in the community. And it works in Miami, and, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a unique experience. I think for the Super Bowl, uh, actually the idea really came when I went to the Super Bowl in Jacksonville in 2004, and I had Pu- uh, Chris Rock sitting right behind me, Puff Daddy sitting over here, Martha Stewart sitting over here. Everybody's out in the seating bowl, and I'm looking at all these celebrities thinking to myself, uh, they wanted to be out in the seating bowl. They wanted to watch the game. They wanted to enjoy the game. They wanted to be left alone at the same time. Right. Uh, well, Puff Daddy was up raising his towel. He wanted everybody to know he was there. But uh, but they kind of wanted to be. So I was thinking, what would they pay to be sitting here on the 40-yard line in the lower level in a big chair but be private and exclusive so they could be seen, they could enjoy the game, not back in a suite somewhere, what would they be willing to pay for that? And that was back in '04. And then when I, I, I kind of had the idea for a long time, when I finally had the opportunity to do it, and Steve, you know, let me do something non-traditional, uh, it was fun to do. And, and so, looking forward to having the Super Bowl here and seeing who's going to be sitting in those seats. It'll be pretty interesting. Speaking of musicians, you know, before I do these, I like to talk to some people who know you, find out some some personal Uh-oh. anecdotes. And I've learned that you and I share an affinity for old school rap music. Yeah, I'm, if you drove in with me in my car in the morning, there's probably <laughs> probably some '90s hip hop on there somewhere. Yeah. Give me some artists. Who's in your playlist right now? Uh, it's uh, <laughs> come on, don't be embarrassed because I'll name some. I'm mine not too. embarrassed. It's just it's it's vast. It could be a tribe called Quest. Yep. It could be De La Soul. It could be Run DMC or Houdini. It could be. Uh, Jay Z, it could be Tupac or Big. I mean, as anything, you know, from that from that genre, pretty much. I like the new stuff too. I listen. I've been listening to more and more of it. Uh, Post Malone, I think, is incredible. Um, I gotta get. I gotta buy two albums now. I buy the, the regular one, and then I gotta get the clean version for when my kids are in the car. So. Exactly. So when I was a kid, I went to in one concert, Run DMC, Houdini. Timex Social Timex Club. Social Remember Club? Timex LL Social Cool J and, and Run DMC. And I LL that Cool one. J was the fourth artist. I was like, looking back at that now, that was like the Super Bowl of, of rap music. It's funny you say that because um, last night, my, my 14-year-old son, I still have a t-shirt from that concert. And it was Run DMC Raising Hell concert. It was 1986. Yep. And I, I used to wear that t-shirt under my football pads. <laughs> so we had a bunch of friends over last night. So my son's wearing the shirt um, he kind of wears it as pajamas sometimes, right? 
so he's running around in the yard with his friend, and they're playing tag or something, and his friend ripped the shirt, so the shirt got ripped. And he came up, and he's like, Dad, the shirt ripped. I'm like, well, it's 32 years old. That makes sense, you know? And the other kid goes, that shirt's worth like $500. It should be in a frame. Why are you wearing that? I'm like, really? I didn't know that. But I was telling him about the concert, and, uh, yeah, I I remember the Beastie Boys were there, too. And it was the first time I'd ever seen the Beastie Boys, and I was at the Oakland Coliseum uh, with about three friends of mine. And, uh, yeah, it was a great concert. It was a lot of fun. How did you get into rap music? I used to play basketball at this this little park in, uh, that had nine-foot rims. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd be dunking listening to the old-school rap, and, which and it wasn't old-school. Well, it was, it was sort of... Uh, I grew up in the East Bay in California, and we'd kind of go over to Oakland. The competition was great, and we'd play on these nine-foot rims, and it got real physical, and it was fun. And, and this one guy used to show up with... You know, with the big boom box, and he was playing Run DMC, and it was the first time I ever heard. It. I was like, "What is that?" You know, yeah. it just kind of stuck. Do you ever run into any of these artists now? Because for me, <laughs> if I run into like athletes of yesteryear that were on posters yeah. in my room, and now I'm interviewing them, I'm like, yeah. "Whoa, this is kind of surreal." But do you ever run into? I any do, of them? and it's cool. So like Luther Campbell and I have become friends. Oh and, my god! And uh, Moni, Moni Love, like you know, I had my suite. She's fantastic. Um, so sometimes when you have an opportunity to be around those people, yeah, it's really interesting because uh, you, you kind of laugh like, you know, I remember going to the Orange Bowl here twice as a student at the University of Colorado, uh, flying into town basically with nowhere to stay and just getting a ticket to the game. Yeah. And, you know, I, I get here and they give me an orange jacket and make me a member of the Orange Bowl committee. And I sent a picture to some of my friends from Bluff, but can you believe this? This is crazy. Um, so those things are fun and running into people that, you know, you've admired for a long time is a lot of fun. So for our listeners, describe the type of sports and entertainment market Miami is. That's an interesting question. I mean, I, th- I think Miami is, a, uh, is truly a curator of culture for, for the rest of the country in a lot of ways, and maybe the rest of the world in a lot of ways as well. I think, you know, when you think about music, food, fashion, art, sports, uh, Miami is, is, you know, I mean, New York is New York and L.A. is L.A. I, I think, it, you know... 20 years ago, you'd probably put Miami further down the list. I think today it's, it's, uh, it's right up there with, with New York and LA in terms of just curating culture in those different areas I just described. There's people from, uh, you know, all over the world that live here now. It's a true, it's, it's probably, it's one of the most global cities in the country. It's, you know, in terms of, uh, in, in terms of just the diversity of culture and diversity of people and, uh, I live in Coral Gables where my sons go to school. You know, there's kids from, England, Italy, you know, all over South, you know, Latin America, Central and South America, um, all over. The, some kids, one kid might have just moved here from Chicago uh, or New York or something. So uh, it's a very, very diverse place. And, uh, you know, in terms of the sports market for us, one of the one of the things I found when I got here that really kind of was just a fantastic uh, thing was just the, the, the depth of fan support for the Miami Dolphins. Mm. I can't speak to the other teams in the market. I don't know, but I, I know for for the Dolphins, everywhere we travel, there's a thousand Dolphins. Like we go to the Cincinnati for the Bengals game, there's a thousand Dolphins fans lined up pregame on the front row. You know, we go to New York, there's a thousand Dolphins fans in the tailgating together in the parking lot, um, and the support. You know, you know we've you know we we've uh, we haven't had a lot of great seasons in the last 15 years or so. That's a long time, and so, but in spite of that. Uh, the support 
from these fans is unwavering, and I think it's it's really fun to be a part of and be around, and, and I feel very fortunate. Very loyal fans. I mean, very much so. Yeah. You know, I love the statues of Don Shula and Dan Marino here, icons of the Dolphins. I think it's great when a, a franchise recognizes the the pioneers who came before. Well, that was really important to me. I mean, I think the first, you know, the, the, the first three things I did when I, when I got the job, uh, the first one was I came down here and spoke to the employees. Uh, the second one was I went around and, and, and met and spoke to every single employee. That took about four hours, but just went, shook their hands, said hello, introduced myself to every... And then the third thing I did was uh, I called every, every living Hall of Famer personally and introduced myself and just gave my number and said, if there's anything you need, call me directly. And... Um, and I, I just think that's really important. I think I think you know we we have just a wealth of of you know the players we have and the history that we have in this organization is is really amazing. When when you go into some other stadiums and you look up at the Ring of Honor or whatever, and there's two or three names or something, and you look up at ours and you think about the names and the accomplishments and the things that took place, uh, and then you get to know these people and you realize just how passionate they are. No one wants to win more. There's no no one. I mean, maybe Steve Ross, but I mean, I'm telling you, like, uh, Nat Moore, Dan Marino, I mean, these guys are just absolute Dolphins fans. Uh, you know, all, all these guys, Jason Taylor and Sam Madison, and uh, they are diehard Dolphins fans, and, and their support for the team is incredible. And, but they're also just great, great people. And we have a little tradition we've, we've been doing now for a while when we go on the road. Uh, the night before the game, we'll go out to dinner, and it's usually Marino, Greasy, Joe Rose, Kim Bocamper, Jimmy Cephalo, Nat Moore, and uh, the stories are, you know, legendary. I mean, it's 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 a lot of fun to be around. They love each other, and they give each other a hard time the whole time, Yeah, and it's a lot of fun to be around. That's got to be amazing to sit at that table and just kind of be a fly on the wall listening to... Well, we'll bring in, you know, I'll bring guests into that environment, whether that's sponsors sometimes or uh, we had a dinner in New York. We had that group, and it was Dan's birthday. So I brought Duper and Clayton in town to come to the dinner because, you know, Marino will look at Duper and Clayton and just every They walk by, and he just goes, I love those guys. Like, <laughs> like he just, he'll say it out loud, like, just to himself. But uh, so we brought Duper and Clayton there, and I had a couple other friends there. We had the CEO of Goldman Sachs there, and we had wow. Rob O'Neill, the Navy SEAL, who killed Osama bin Laden. And, and wow. so the stories got really rich, <laughs> you know, between the football stories and some of the other stories. And it was just a really interesting group of people, and you bring them all together and just sit back and watch it. It's really fun. Yeah. More about you personally. So you mentioned three sons. Uh, you guys live in, in Coral Gables. Mm-hmm. What do you like to do? When you're not at work, because I know for a lot of the executives, coaches, even athletes I speak with, it's very easy to be on button all the time and not have the, the home life balance. So you have three kids, wife, what do you guys like to do when you can turn the button off for a little bit? You know, I just like to be with my family and friends and, and barbecue and sit in the backyard and mm-hmm. grill and drink wine and hang out <laughs> and have fun. And, we, you know, this weekend we had some friends in town and their family and, and you know, everything from playing. We were playing touch football and I was all-time quarterback with the kids to <laughs> grilling, you know, steak to, uh, you know, watching college football on Saturday. And, and they were Michigan State fans, so they had a worse day than me. Uh, and, uh, and so just, you know, just, just hanging out with people I, I love and care about. I kind of look at it. People ask me about the work-life balancing a lot. And I, I tell people that it's, I don't really, it's not about managing my time. It's more about managing my energy. So 
if you think about like a video game, how they have that little bar that the green goes to yellow, then goes to red. I've got two energy bars, one for work and one for for family and personal, and and uh, I try to monitor them. And anytime one of them starts getting into the red, I I, I time out. I, I gotta I gotta recharge that one a little bit, you know. So. Um, uh, the work one rarely gets into red. Sometimes it gets into yellow. The personal one gets into red more often, and I've got to, I've got to stop working and focus on it. But, uh, but that's really it's about managing your energy. I think. I have one, so I can't imagine three kids. That's that's got to really drain the, the energy bar. Well, sometimes it fills the energy bar up too. So you yeah, know, they're pretty they're pretty cool. I got three little boys, and and uh, they're a lot of fun to be around. So, that's great. One of the things that has changed since you came on board, and I'm blown away by it, is the content that you guys create and the digital and how much more traffic you guys drive here at the Dolphins than any other team in the NFL. Your photography, I got to say, as someone who watches all the different sports teams and pays very close attention to the digital and social media side, it's the best I've seen. Talk to us a little bit about that decision because that's an investment. Mm -hmm. I think I read a quote from you saying it's not just deciding we want to post on Twitter and Instagram more. It's a lot more than that. Yeah, well, it's really, I kind of have a philosophy. It's like anything else. It starts with people. So if you put the right people in place and then you put the right process in place, the results kind of come. And you have to have a vision for those people in the process. And and a few years ago, I just decided, you know, we've fired all our agencies and and I just decided we're going to build an in-house creative team. Um, I really believe that, uh, you know, traditional media, uh, you know, look, uh, I believe this three years, four years ago. Uh, we stopped spending money on traditional media. We started putting all our money into digital and social platforms for ourselves as we go out to, to the market. Uh, with a few exceptions, we, we still buy some outdoor, you know, in August, September, things we want to have a little bit of a market presence. But um, we can have more of a market presence by getting, you know, our partners like, Budweiser and Pepsi to activate in the marketplace at, at, at Grocery Channel or something than if I go buy 100 billboards. So mm-hmm. we try to have a market presence by doing those things, but then really use digital and social as, as our marketing platform. So when you think about it, if that's what I'm going to do, that's probably where, where the rest of corporate America is headed. Um, there's $80 billion spent on television ads right now. Um, and I, I don't know about most of you, but I don't really, you know, I might listen to sports talk radio in the morning once in a while. But you're not listening to the radio probably if you're not in your car. Um, you know, a lot of traditional methods of media are are, uh, are struggling. I mean, NFL television is still a really valuable place to advertise because the top 20 shows have all been NFL games this year so far in terms of viewership and ratings and it's live content. But that aside, uh, we built out a creative team and it started with the people. And I was originally an art major when I went to college, and, and so I have a, a creative side of me that I that I have to feed that's enjoyable for me. And and when I'm able to put a team like that in place and try to give them a vision for something and then they take that vision and run with it and make it better than anything I could ever do, uh, it's a lot of fun. So that was a, that was a very deliberate strategy uh, and, and we continue to build on it. We're, we're, um, we're first in the NFL in, in social media sponsorship revenue right now by a factor of about four, but it's still uh, very small compared to what I think it's going to be in about three years. How many people on your digital creative staff? About 22, 23. Wow. Yeah. And you guys have won Clio's, Emmys. I mean, this is a, a pretty we accomplished have, yeah. staff for not being together very It's long. a great team of people, and, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's, they're constantly challenging each other. 
Um, we just had a great initiative, you know, with our cheerleading program. Um, I saw it. Where uh, we're really trying to change the cheerleading brand for us, where it's about, you know, these women and empowering them and who they are as people, and it's it's about UBU and and uh, our photography staff took pictures, portraits. So I got this. I'll sometimes see things that I really like, and I'll send it to our creative team and just be like, "Can we do this?" You know, and. I had seen, I don't know if you ever seen these really close-up portraits of somebody's face, you know, these wonderful artists that do this stuff, whether it was Obama or Robert De Niro in an Esquire magazine shoot or something. I'll send it to them and say, look at the light, look at how they did this. And they'll go out and, all right, I need this camera with this F-stop, and I need this ring light. i got to go purchase it. I'm like, go get it. Like, I want it to look like that. Mm-hmm. So they went and did it, and then they shot the girls, uh, the, these young women, with uh, in portrait mode with no... Not portrait mode, but with this, with the ring light and everything, with no makeup on, and they're unretouched photos. So it's just raw of of who these girl, who these young women are, and they're beautiful photographs. So we ended up making like that's the cover now. We don't have a swimsuit calendar anymore. We have a cheerleading book, and the cover is is three of the three of their faces, these young women, and and uh, and it's just powerful, joyful, beautiful. And inside the book, it tells the stories about all these young women, who they are, and their aspirations. One, one of them is a, has two degrees from NYU. One is a is an ER nurse. One of them is an entrepreneur. One's a salesperson here at the Dolphins. Um, we're trying to tell those stories so that you know my young boys can look at women differently than mm-hmm. they would if they saw a swimsuit calendar, and that young girls can look at these young women and say, "Oh, I want to be like that someday." And, but it starts with the creative. It starts with that photography and with that vision and and being able to produce something creatively that's meaningful. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Now back to our conversation. As father of a 13-year-old daughter, I, I thank you for doing that. I think it's really important to, to show the background of the women and that they're not just the, the dancers or cheerleaders that you see them as on the field. They are people, too, and they have backgrounds. Yeah, when you get to know, when you get to know them, um, they're, really, they're very aspirational, motivated, smart, talented young women, and... and uh, it's been fun. It's been fun to watch them. Like the courage. They, we had a, uh, a show the other night to launch the book, and you know they were able to kind of be themselves and launch their talents and what they do and and show themselves for who they are. And uh, I was just really proud of them because they exhibited a lot of courage and putting themselves out there like that. 
Three years ago, I had the uh, fortune of interviewing Mr. Ross at my event in New York Sports PR Summit. He was on stage with me, and we talked about Rise to Win. And ever since that time, I've really paid attention to Rise to Win, but also what the Dolphins do and the community. And again, I think you guys are, are leaders in that area. And everything from what you're doing, uh, you know, I, I see getting together with police and, and talking about how things could be better in the community to uh, I love the cultural tours that you do uh, yeah. where you take the players out in the community and say, hey, this is Miami. This is where you're playing. You should know a little bit about the city in which you live. Maybe you can spend a little time discussing the priority that community outreach is for the Miami Dolphins. Well, I think, you know, community outreach has always been an important part of the Miami Dolphins. Uh, we, we've done a lot in the community. I, I've told Steve when I first got here, I said, look, you don't really own the team. He said, I paid a billion dollars for this team. You know? <laughs> you know, I said, well, it was here before you got here. It'll be here after you're gone. And, and, you know, we're stewards of sort of a public trust. And the team's always had a great community legacy. Um, but I think the last couple of years, we've really tried to take that to a whole different level. Uh, we're proud of the Dolphins Cancer Challenge uh, uh, that we do every year. We've now raised over $25 million for Sylvester Comprehensive uh, Cancer Center, uh, $5 million this past year. Um, we, we've done a lot of things. Finn's Weekend, we've, we've hosted for 25 years, produces great things in the education sector and the community. But the last few years, I think it really started with these players and um, uh, the, the players taking a knee during the anthem, which obviously has been a very polarizing topic. Um, but it's sort of prompted, okay, let's think about, you know, these social issues and, and how we can, how we can impact things differently. And, um, you know, I have to say, you know, it's a very, as you know, it's a very polarizing time in this country. Mm -hmm. And I think people want to make it a binary issue. They want to say this is about, you know, you're, you have to, you have to take a side. And the reality is the world, the world's, much more complex than that. It's not that simple. Um, and if you, um, you know, if you disagree, you know, with Colin Kaepernick kneeling, uh, it, you know, or if you agree with Colin Kaepernick kneeling, it doesn't necessarily make you un-American. And if you disagree, it doesn't necessarily make you a racist. And and you you can simultaneously sort of, you know, support the military and law enforcement, and also believe in social justice and 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 what you know these young men are kneeling for the. And justice for all, part of the Pledge of Allegiance, I say. And, and I think that, um, you know, what, we, what we've tried to do here is say, let's, let's look at this differently. Like, we need civility in this country. We need understanding. We need people to think and listen to each other and try to empathize with each other. Um, you know, the vast majority of law enforcement in this country are wonderful people that go out and put their lives on the line every day. There are a few, and, and, and as I talk to more and more law enforcement, they'll, they'll tell you. They'll be the first to tell you, like, yeah, there's some bad eggs out there that do bad things. But the vast majority of law enforcement are incredible people. And at the same time, you know, my African-American friends have to have conversations with their sons about how to deal with police that I don't have to have with my right. sons. That's just the reality, and that's the truth. And yeah. so that needs to change. So um, you can support both. And so what we've tried to do is is bring together these athletes with law enforcement, bring together kids in the community with law enforcement, have conversations, get them together. We do tailgates before every game. We've been doing for a couple years now uh, that the players help pay for. You know, these guys, Kenny Stills is out on his day off every single week working in the community. Um, and not just, you know, and he's out meeting with law enforcement. He's out 
taking police and getting them together with kids. Uh, and we're trying to do that with the Dolphins as well. We've developed a Football Unites program uh, where we've given hundreds of thousands of dollars to different groups like the Trayvon Martin Foundation, 5,000 role models. Um, you know, we're out in the you know, LGBTQ community doing things there with Save, Save Dade. Um, and so we're trying to do things to just bring people together. There's so much divisiveness in the country right now. We have this platform as a football team, as a, as a brand here in this community. So anything we can do to bring people together is what we try to do. And uh, Jason Jenkins, who, who runs that for us, is just does an amazing job. I joke with him that he must have three clones because I don't know. <laughs> no kidding. If you watch him on social media, go follow him on social media, you'll see yeah. all the activity we're doing. I don't know when he sleeps. I don't know when he has time to do anything because he's out in the community almost every day doing things. And uh, I'm very proud of him and the team and the whole organization, the players themselves. Um, and it's really about bringing people together. I, I love the military. I mean, if, if you're one of these players and you witnessed, you know, your sister uh, being beaten by police in front of you and you experienced the paralyzed will of that, which one of the players did, you're going to have a different point of view about police and what that means than if you're a Navy SEAL and you held your friend in battle when he died in your arms. Mm. Or you're a gold star mother who sent your son off to war and he came back in a box and someone handed you a flag. That flag means something very different to you. And so the more we can get people talking about those things and empathizing and having some understanding of how the other person feels, the more we can bring people together um, the more we just pick a side and fight each other, the worse things get. And so anything we can do to try to bring people together to have those conversations is, uh, <clears throat> is what we're trying to do. Well, and look, the Miami Dolphins and each of these players have their own brand and they have their own platform. And when they speak, people listen and they're influential. And one of the things I'm impressed about with the Dolphins organization is it seems like where other organizations I look at and I see the players going and doing things on their own without the cooperation of the organization, it seems like this organization works in sync with its players on the work in the community. You support your players. And if I'm a player, I look at the organization differently because I know I'm supported by my organization instead of feeling like I'm out on my own doing this work. And, and in fact, some cases, I'm, I'm going against what my organization wants. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, we're, all, we're all part of, you know, one organization together, and we want to work together to do these things. You know, Albert Wilson got here this year, and, and he grew up as a foster child, and, you know, obviously working with foster children is really important to him. And we said, okay, what can we do to help to work with you on it and, and, and try to go out and, and work with foster kids? I think, um, you know, there's, just, there's all kinds of opportunity, and, you know, we've, we've hosted, uh, you know, uh, the Football Unites program, we hosted over 10,000 kids at our practices this year, youth football, girls and boys, different ages. We bring out teams to practice every day that Coach Gase is immensely supportive of. We have, we have youth football kid, kids out there every day during OTAs, during training camp, at practice, uh, not during the season now because of the confidentiality of the practices, but, I mean, f- through training camp. And every day we had, we had youth kids out there and connecting football with the professional football in the community, the more, and then we, you know, I was talking to Jason one day, and we're like, you know, we need to bring the police out here too, because we have the kids out here already, let's get them together. And so we started doing that. And I, I just think, you know, there's just so much opportunity to do more, and, and uh, 
I'm really proud of the team and, and all the work that they put into it. What else do you still want to do as uh, vice chair and president and CEO of the Miami Dolphins? And I want to win State? the Super Bowl, but <laughs> you know, um, but that's one of the hard things about where you sit, right? Like you don't. From a big picture, yes, you influence that, but you're not coaching the team. You're not signing no, the players. No, no, I don't, so. I don't. I don't. Football operations per se doesn't report up to me, and I'm not. You know, they report up to Stephen, and that's not my my thing. And you know, those guys, we all do our jobs and we respect each other. And, and uh, those guys work really hard, and they know. They, you know, it would be really foolish for me to think I know how to scout a player or, or play call or do something better than. Than, than what those guys do because that's what they spent their career learning and doing and working on. And so uh, our job here is to just really try to maximize the business opportunity, impact the community, and do everything we can to support them to go out and win. And, and when we do, it, it, you know, what it's going to do for this community is, is going to be incredible. So we have students in the audience from Johnson & Wales University, Nova Southeastern University, Florida International University, Barry University, and Florida Memorial University. At this point, if it's okay with you, we're going to open it up to some questions from the students. I know we have a crowd mic right here, so if you have a question for Tom, Great. raise your hand. Don't be shy now. This is a rare opportunity, you students. You guys came here for a reason. And if you could state your name and, and your school. Professor Craig Skilling, Johnson & Wales University. Uh, thank you to the Miami Dolphins organization and both of you for having us here today. Uh, on behalf of the students, I'm going to pose this question for them uh, just because it's something that comes up in the classroom. At what point you did an amazing job of kind of outlining other roles and what happens within the business structure. At what point does it become a strategy versus an organic strategy versus being forced by industry to make a decision in, in your particular role? I'm sorry. What do you mean in terms of just so? So I, I actually I teach strategic marketing, and we have okay. uh, you know students in this class that are from there, and they're working on a marketing plan, and they're thinking um, issues come into play. Uh, are we being reactive? Are we being proactive in our approach? So at what point in your decision making process to implementing uh, whether it was that cheerleading uh, change of where we're going based on we know the Me Too movements of the world, women's empowerment, that's a conversation that the country is having as a whole. Mm -hmm. At what point do you make the decision being organic versus it being reactive to what uh, is happening? Hopefully a lot. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes you have to be reactionary, but hopefully you're thinking ahead. I mean, you know, to sit three, four years ago and say, we're going we're gonna to build out a creative content team and, and, and focus on social and digital because I think that's where it's going in three or four years. Um, you know, I, th I look at it like that's part of my job is to try to think that way and try to see things, you know, before they happen or at least recognize what's happening and change while things are changing instead of waiting for something bad to happen and reacting to it. So the more we can get out ahead of things and, and think strategically that way, um, the better off we're going to be. And that's whether that's, you know, just cultural social issues or whether that's just business challenges. Um, you know, I think it's really important to try to think that way, test those theories, and then, you know, begin down a path courageously and then iterate along the way. I think you also have to have a culture where people are, you know, uh, you can kind of fail forward. You know, you have to be allowed to fail once in a while. As long as you're, as long as you're taking a calculated amount of risk and you know what you're doing and you, and you learn from the failure and you don't make the same mistake multiple times, you have to be able to make some mistakes along. If you're not making any mistakes, uh, 
you're not pushing the envelope enough. So as long as they're thoughtful and you know what you're doing, and then if it doesn't work, you go, okay, let's let's iterate this way and learn from that mistake. Um, but strategy to me is a is a set of connected activities. So you know, one example is our ticket sales strategy and service strategy. Again, it started with getting the right people in place and the right team, and then getting the right process in place, and the results have come. But it's not as simple as, you know, one of the things we did a few years ago is try to eliminate selling to brokers, which was very controversial. All these teams sell, sell a lot of tickets to ticket brokers. And so we just stopped selling tickets to brokers. We wouldn't renew their tickets, and we stopped selling to them. And, um, and other teams saw some of our results and said, oh, well, they stopped selling to brokers, so we should stop selling to brokers. But that's not the strategy. That's one element of it. The rest of it is... We renew earlier than everybody else. We get in season in October. We have the biggest group sales team and, and season ticket sales team probably in the NFL. We have the longest new season ticket sales cycle because we renew earlier. We stop selling to brokers, but we also reset the seating bowl, hold back a certain amount of percentage of seats in each section that we sell as single game tickets. We dynamically and variable price. like We manage the inventory. We look at it almost hourly during the season. We have a team of people that just sit there and analyze the inventory. So there's a whole set of connected activities around our ticket strategy. Just eliminating brokers is just one piece of it. right? So to the degree we get ahead of that and construct something that's meaningful, that's the strategy. It's, it's all of those things, not just one piece of it. And that's consistent across a number of different things that we do. Right? I want to follow up on something you said just really quickly. Uh, fail forward. I love that term. And creating a culture where people aren't afraid to fail forward. Because there's a lot of people that sometimes worry about losing their job if they take a risk and, and make a mistake. From where you sit as the leader of this organization, how do you create a culture where people feel comfortable failing forward? It starts with communicating, you know, uh, what the values, you know, and when I say values, I don't just mean the words that you stick up on a wall or put in the employee handbook. I mean, the things, you, how decisions will be made. If you come up and articulate, these are the things that are important that you're going to be judged on. And, uh, and then you have to actually live that. So I think culture is a very misunderstood term in, in business. And a lot of people think it's about employee lunches or whatever. It's What culture really is, in my estimation, is, is the decisions that leadership makes. And the things that culture, that destroy positive workplace culture anyway, are things like you know, the, what I call the socialism of rewards and recognition, when you have things like nepotism or uh, uh, uncertainty, the same thing that creates volatility in financial markets. When you know, as leadership, you have a responsibility to communicate what's going on to people, even if there's confidential things. There's a way to communicate a timeline of when they'll know, and all that uncertainty creates unrest. And then just um, the other one is just what I call leadership hypocrisy. If you get up and say we're going to be about this, and then when the decision comes that you're about something else, mm. uh, as long as you're straight with people and they know where they stand. And then they know, then they know what's really valued, and then the decisions you make are consistent with that. Then the culture starts to take off because people can self-select out and go, well, that's, I don't, that's really not what I agree with, so I'm gonna go find a culture that fits me better. Um, and then other people go, well, this is exactly the kind of place I wanna be a part of, and they get really excited about it. And then things kind of take off from there. So it's really about communicating what those values are, and, and here it's, you're, you're going to be judged a lot more on your mindset uh, and and how you make decisions and how you work as a team collaboratively and how you do things than necessarily what the result is. Because, again, I really believe if you get the right people, the right process, the results come. And um, uh, it's not just about, okay, the result is X, so you either get fired or promoted. It's it's about 
uh, being a continuous learner, accepting responsibility, being a great team member, thinking critically, uh, having integrity in your decision making. Like you're going to be judged on those things, and if we get those things right, the results are going to come. Other questions. Hi, um, my name is Martina Bodden. I'm a student of Johnson & Wales University. Um, I just want to commend you and honestly say how appreciative I am for you being so open and honest with us this morning. Thank um, you. Yes, yeah, so instead of taking a business uh, turn with my question, I'm going to be more personal. I am not from the country, and um, I'm just wondering, you're not from Miami. And not, no. what at what point... Or, sorry, rather, how difficult was it of a decision for you to decide to move from where you're comfortable to somewhere where you were less comfortable, for lack of better words? And, like, were you tempted at all to go back there, like, to what was comfortable for you? That's a really great question. I think, you know, for me personally, I've moved around a lot in my life, so it's been relatively easy for me. I've lived a lot of places um, all domestically here, but, um, but you know, I mean, I'll give you a 30-year rundown. I mean, I grew up seventh grade through high school near San Francisco. I went to school at the University of Colorado. I lived in Chicago, North Carolina, New York City, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Pittsburgh, Phoenix, San Diego, and here. And that's over about 30 years. So I've moved around a lot. So for me, personally, it was pretty easy. But what happens is when you have a family like I do, it really starts impacting them, and then it gets much more difficult. Um, you know, La Jolla, where we lived in San Diego, was about as, uh, we used to call it the bubble. I mean, it's, it's about as, you know, beautiful a place as you're going to find. And uh, we had a great life there. So, uh, but career turns took, took, took the turns that they did. And, and it was sort of one of those, like, this isn't going to work. And we need to find something that works. Um, but at the same time, I used, to, I used to joke with my wife. I said, I'm kind of worried about the boys growing up here. And she said, why? This place is perfect. I said, that's why. Like, you know, it's not reality when it's 72 and sunny every day and everybody's white, rich, and happy. Like, that's just not life. So, you know, I just said, like, this isn't, I'm worried that this is where they're going to grow up and think that this is reality. So, um, you know, coming to Miami and being a little uncomfortable when we first got here, and when I say that, just the transition of change is always, is always hard for a family, you know? Um, and, um, it's been fantastic. I mean, listen again. My kids' school, there's you know their little friends are from all over the world, and it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool, and um, and from different you know economic backgrounds and and different cultural backgrounds, and uh, uh, so they're learning all kinds of things about different people. Everybody doesn't look the same, talk the same, and think the same, and uh, and I think that's great for my kids. So everywhere you go, you know, we had this discussion with some friends this weekend. There's no perfect place to live unless it's just perfect for you because all your friends and family are there and that's your home. But for me, uh, there's positives and negatives about everywhere. And uh, I miss the fall. Like, for me, the hardest thing about <laughs> Miami is it was flipping hot yesterday, yes. you know. And I'm just going, man, I need, I need to put a sweater on, have the leaves changing right now, you know. Like, so, I mean, but the, the, the cultural diversity part of it has been fantastic. And by the way, i got to say, from me to the game yesterday, and this is very smart, I would do the same thing if I were you. The opposing team is in the extreme heat, and the Dolphins are in the shade. That's got to be like a 15-degree difference at least. 30, yeah. God. <laughs> actually, when... It, Very smart. Yeah, I put... Uh, I took a... Actually, just a thermostat, just a regular little thermostat you'd hang on your wall. And I threw it on the ground in the sun uh, back in 2004, and it was... 
I think 90, 95 degrees that day uh, in July. And then I threw it over in the shade. And, well, I'm sorry. It was 95. Ambient temperature was 95 degrees. Okay. So I threw it down in the shade, and it said 95 degrees. Then I threw it over in the sun, and it said 125 degrees. So, and, and one of the first things I did when I got here was I went up to the upper deck in one of our games, and I sat there in my suit oh. during a game. And I just, I lasted about, you know, 15 minutes. I, my, I was just dripping wet. Like, just all my clothes were stuck to me, and, you know. And uh, I went back over to the suite, and I, I just looked at Steve, and I said, you know, because the roof was a really expensive part of it, and it's hard to attach direct revenue to it the same way we could with some other things. I, I don't know how these people do it. It's like sitting on the surface of Mars over there. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't come to a game and do that, so I don't know why we would expect other people to do it. So, uh, you know, now they can sit up there, and it's it's comfortable. It's much more comfortable in the shade. So, uh, yeah, sometimes I think to really understand what your fans or your consumers in any business go through, you have to actually experience it yourself to appreciate it. That's oh, very true. Other questions? Dakota Baxendale from Johnson & Wales University. So one of the things that you said that it stood out to me was how you've implemented a lot of non-traditional uh, approaches in your tenure. Um, how has that really stood you out against your competition, especially in South Florida where you know it's so culturally diverse? Well, I, you know, I, I kind of, you know, one of the ways where Steve and I, Steve Ross and I really get along is, is we both tend to think very differently about things. I, I think... Uh, strategy we've talked about is, you know, to me it's not what you do better in your competition, it's what you do different. So um, I think thinking differently is really important. Uh, all the progress of humankind, you know, of humanity has been about people challenging conventional wisdom and doing things differently. So, you know, I, I think that uh, to look at problems critically and opportunities and think about different ways to do things and problem solve and have the courage again and the judgment to say, this is where I think things are going. We're going to do this differently. Uh, have, you know, whatever, the conventional wisdom people tell you that, you know, oh, that'll never work. That's not going to work. That's not the way we do it. This is the way, the, my least favorite thing, you know, this is the way we've always done it. It's like, eh, wrong answer. You know, like, well, why do we do it? Well, that's just the way we've always done it. Um, and it's not change for change's sake, but it's, it's you know, you can't have... Um, progress without change and change is a fundamental scary thing for human beings but you can't have progress without change and and by the way if you just leave everything status quo the world's changing around you so you're going backwards so you know you have to try to think differently sometimes and problem solve in that way time for one more question i think we had one right here hi good morning my name is victoria lark from johnson wells university good morning um thank you so with you were talking about earlier how 20 years ago Miami wasn't necessarily on the same level as New York and LA as far as you know the culture and everything we have going on here so with the bid for the 2020 Super Bowl 2021 national championships where do you see the Miami Dolphins or even Hard Rock Stadium as a whole developing and increasing in the next you know, five to 20 years, how do you see the face of the franchise changing and, you know, the unwavering support from the fans I don't believe is going anywhere as being a Florida native. Um, so how do you see that developing? How do you want to develop those things? 
I think it's a great question. I mean, I don't, I don't know. You know, I can't predict the future any more than anybody else in the room. You know, um, but I can say that you know sometimes the way to predict the future is to try to create it. Um, and you know, I remember pulling up to the stadium four years ago, five five years ago when I first got here, and there was no solution for how to renovate the stadium, or where the money was going to come from, how it was going to be renovated, what it was going to look like. Uh, and looking at it and saying, you know, it needs to be changed. I mean, it just needs, it's just 30 years old and it's not a great venue. And then getting through that process and having a vision and having, you know, Steve really step up and, and, and have the plan in place and not really having started yet, but driving up the stadium off of 27th Avenue and seeing it and thinking a couple of years from now, I'm going to drive up and it's going to look totally different. And then now that it's sort of done, pulling up and almost taking for granted that it's done, right? Because and every once in a while I'll stop and remind myself or go look at a picture of what it used to look like to remind myself um, of what it was. So it's, it's fun. It's fun sitting at, you know, at games and looking out at the crowd and hearing the loud crowd noise and seeing people enjoying the stadium or at a concert or a soccer match and thinking how it's been transformed. Um, and then now thinking, okay, what's the next big thing? And you know, tennis is one example, bringing in the Miami Open Tennis Tournament, which is really Steve's vision. I mean, Steve called me one day. <laughs> he just called me one day in my office, and he's just like, I got it, baby. I'm like, what? He's like, we're going to keep Miami Open Tennis Tournament in Miami. We're going to do it at the stadium. What do you think? And I was just like, that's amazing. I'm in. Let's do it. It's incredible, you know. And he just had this vision for it. And everybody's like, you're going to put a tennis tournament at the stadium? How's that going to work? You're going to put it in the parking lot? It doesn't make any sense, you know. And I think people come out now, and so when they see it in March, they're going to get it, right? Some visions that people can't get, but you have to, you, you just got to build it, and then they come, right? It's kind of one of those things. And I think when people see the landscaping and the grandstand and the luxury seating and the center court that's going to be there. And, uh, you know, so it's going to be pretty incredible. So it's just um, trying to figure out what's next. And, you know, for the Dolphins, certainly it's, it's really, it's really, um, look, I just desperately want to win. And so does Steve. And I think, you know, when that happens, if we can get there, that's, it's, it's going to be transform- transformative. And, uh, the stadium itself, in the meantime, we're going to try to get everything right with the experience, which is we still have a long ways to go there with how we get ride sharing in and out of here, the ingress, egress. We're putting in pedestrian bridges and tunnels that are finally going in this off season. That's going to really relieve because right now the pedestrian traffic holds up the vehicular traffic mm-hmm. and, and, uh, uh, and it's harder to get out. So it's going to be much easier to get in and out of here starting next year. What we're doing with music, what we're doing with food, what we're doing with uh, even things like we're talking about with fashion and different things. So uh, I don't know. that It's just going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to continue to grow and do new things. I know that because sitting still is, you know, it's and it's really the vision of the owner. Like, again, not talking about what well, – he's not sitting back going, look, look what we did the last three years of the stadium. He's thinking, what can we do next? And that's inspiring to be around. All right, before we end, and if you don't want to do this, I understand. But I talked to Matt Higgins yesterday, and you just kind of slipped into it a minute ago. He said you were a master of impersonation. <laughs> you just were doing a great Stephen Ross right there. I've been doing that since I'm like five years old. I mean, the the, the uh, my sixth grade teacher, you know, God bless her. She used to leave the room, and I'd get up in front of the class and imitate her. She was from North Carolina, <laughs> and it was too easy. So, 
I've I've been do I don't know why I've always been doing that, and it's my my best impressions are people you've probably never you know never met, just people I've worked with or whatever. But uh, it's always been fun. Yeah. All right. I won't I won't ask you to do one, but we'll just know that about <laughs> you that yeah. you you like to do impersonations. Do at any of the staff meetings? Do you ever slip into a impersonation uh, of anyone? Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah probably. Well, that concludes our conversation. A few thank yous. Thank you to the Miami Dolphins. Thank you to Hard Rock Stadium, Jason Jenkins, uh, Christy Bonk, and the operations staff here at Hard Rock. Thank you to Boingo, our title sponsor of the Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Thank you to all the students that are in attendance. You can hear this conversation on iTunes at Sports Business Radio or go to sportsbusinessradio.com. Again, you can follow us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio or on Twitter at SB Radio. Let's give Tom a big round of applause. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was great.